The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... I literally replaced food with alcohol and I was a total, total mess. My liver was showing showing signs of cirrhosis. My platelets were so low. I was like black and blue. I, I fractured my hand somewhere in those last few months. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. And as always, thank you for joining us. I greatly appreciate tuning into the podcast every week. And just a quick reminder, if you do listen every week, or if you are just starting to listen, remember that every Monday we update or upload bite-sized episodes of the podcast. So this is 5, 10, 15 minutes of golden nugget information from previous episodes that we've done so that you don't need to listen to the full episode. You can just get that quick bite size of information that can absolutely serve you well leading into your week, your day, or even your month moving forward with your diabetes management. So be sure to check those out. And today, my guest that I had on was Justine Whitchurch. She is from Australia, the Gold Coast, which is very different to the weather in Ireland. We had a nice conversation about that before we pressed record. Justine is a personal trainer, an author, a model, and a motivational speaker. And having experienced a near-death alcohol addiction, while admittedly at her worst, Justine was consuming about three bottles of wine a day and a few shots of vodka if she wanted to go undetected as she said herself. Justine now lives her life with health and fitness as her core foundation. Her self-published book, Sobriety Delivered Everything Alcohol Promised, outlines the steps Justine took after hitting rock bottom with just months left to live. Just a few years after Justine was sober, she was then diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 44. And as we know, that generally is considered quite late. So that is going to be a massive shock in itself. Something that came as, again, a massive shock, but Justine feels it came at the perfect time as she was prepared for it because her daughter 
was previously diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 7. Justine, throughout this episode, openly shares her darkest times, how she survived, and what steps she took to ultimately become the fittest and healthiest she's ever been. Enjoy. So obviously, Christine, as I said to you, me and you have kind of been in touch through Instagram for probably a couple of years now at this stage in terms of, you know, health and fitness and diabetes. And what I always love about your page is you're very open. You're very honest on social media about your experiences and struggles with alcohol. And I always find what you post very inspiring in relation to you kind of taking control of your life and getting a solid grasp on essentially your life and the things that you want. And one that actually, one of your posts that caught my eye relatively recently, the headline of it was anxiety and alcohol killed my music career. And then you went Mm. on to say, you used to sing, you used to dance, you were a performer. And you say, in fact, I was even a 90s pop star for a brief period of time and in a band touring with Kylie Minogue. So can you tell me a bit more about that experience and how essentially that kind of acted as the catalyst to your alcohol addiction? Well, that was actually, so that was in my um, late teens and early 20s. I was in the music industry here in Australia. Um, I was a singer. Um, That's pretty much all I ever wanted to do. And I had several opportunities to perform with different bands um, that were doing quite well in Australia and, and in Europe. And I was signed to Sony records for a short period of time. So we did a couple of, uh, singles, um, did a cover of ABC's The Look of Love and it did relatively well here in Australia and in Europe. So I was a performer. I was on stage. I did a lot of, um, television and, you know, we didn't have social media back then. It was all old fashioned press. I'm really showing my age now. (laughs) (laughs) That was quite some time ago. Um, but yeah, I have, I suppose backtracking a little bit, I've always had, um, an underlying anxiety, uh, condition and obsessive compulsive disorder, which wasn't really diagnosed when I was younger because nobody actually went to therapists back then. And yeah, I, um, there was, you know, plenty of times where I couldn't cope with the anxiety of an audition or something that was coming up. And I'd learnt sort of early on that I could, I could medicate with alcohol. And there was a number of times where (laughs) I would turn up to an audition or just about to get on stage and, you know, throw down a couple of shots of vodka because I just was, it was this overwhelming um, anxiety and step out and either make a fool of myself or forget the words or just do really poorly. And yeah, that's, I guess that was just one of the, one of the times that alcohol didn't serve me as well as what I thought it would do. So you're obviously feeling very anxious or stressed or apprehensive about an audition or a show that was coming up using a drink to kind of numb those nerves, essentially. Mm -hmm. And almost as a result, you took too many drinks, forgot your words or whatever it was. Yeah. Did that then lead to more stress or anxiety because the thing that you felt 
was kind of helping you get through that stressful moment or audition had almost made it worse? Well, definitely, uh, especially the, you know, the way that I was drinking in those particular circumstances, and I'm sure most people who've decided that they want to do a few shots in a row will be able to relate, they catch up with you. You don't feel it at the time, so you think, oh, another one's not going to hurt me. And then all of a sudden you're hammered. So, um, yeah, it did. And absolutely, I think, you know, with with anything that I was doing with my drinking, whether it had been that I'd, I'd made a fool of myself or I had, um, you know, as you mentioned, potentially forgotten the words and stuffed up an audition or done something that, that I shouldn't have, there was always a come down. And with the come down with alcohol, there was always additional anxiety. So it was a, a, a kind of a vicious cycle. Um, but there was plenty of times, you know, over those years where I guess my alcohol was quite, my alcohol consumption was intact, but I always knew that if I needed to medicate, it was there. So I was never really there wasn't many times where I was being what I would call a, an appropriate social drinker. It was alcohol was always uh, used much more so for, for medication. So was this initially exclusively for experiences like a show or an audition? No. And, <laughs> oh, this, no. this was just for, for any sort yep. of event okay definitely so if I I'll backtrack a little bit long a bit, bit probably a little couple few years prior to that but um I think I learned well I can remember distinctly uh, I, I actually went into rehab um almost 10 years ago now I'll, probably, I'll talk about that a little bit later on if you want me to but um we did an exercise where we had to almost retrace our steps and think back to when we first used alcohol as a form of medication as opposed to a social experience and I remember I was 19 and I'd had this on-off boyfriend who I thought was the love of my life and that was it and we were you know on one minute off the next and he made a I was I was house sitting one of my um, parents friends home and he made a phone call to me and said, you know, this is it, it's all over and that was the last time. And I was already in bed at the time when he called and I went to the fridge and I picked up two two bottles of beer. God knows why it was beer. I think that was what was in there. It's not, not something I would normally drink. And I took them back to bed with me and I drank them until I was calm enough to go to sleep. And I, I absolutely now connect the dots and realize that that was probably the first time that I truly medicated my anxiety or my emotions with alcohol. So I was 19 at that time. And when that happened, was that kind of, and admittedly, as you said, you were somebody who kind of suffered from anxiety even, even before that. When you brought those two bottles of beer to bed and you felt relaxed and relaxed enough to sleep was that then almost like a realization for you moving forward to think well I felt better when I had these two bottles of beer so maybe I can just continue that when I feel a similar way in the future potentially I don't think that I was conscious that that's what it was at the time and that particular event was something that I 
I really only recalled when I did a heap of digging in my therapy. But I, yeah, I think it definitely was a moment in time where I did, um, you know, recognise that this is possibly a solution or an option when I feel a bit out of control. I, I was never, you know, I, I, even being in the music industry like I was and later, later in life as well, I, I was never a drug taker. It was interesting, you know, that was surrounding me at the time. And people always ask me, oh, did that happen when you're in the music career? Did you take drugs as well? And I, I didn't. I just didn't. So alcohol was my thing. And, yeah, it, um, it, it served a purpose at the time that, that I wasn't really – I definitely was not enough in tune with myself to know that's what it was. It's just what I did, if that makes sense. There was no real um, aha moment about about that that connection at the time. It was much more, well, I'm just not coping. I'll just have a drink and, yeah, not a lot of thought went into it. So, so presumably then when you were kind of at the height of your music career back then, were you doing this full time or was it like a, a part time sort of gig? My music career? Yeah. That was full time then. Yeah, that was okay. full time. And um, yeah, the, over the years, depending on what I was doing, there was moments where I was, you know, doing something else in between. I had uh, you know, a corporate job as well when I needed to. Um, but the music career was what I was hundred percent focused on and that's what I felt like I was going to do for the rest of my life uh and I did that until my just after probably about 27 yeah I think I got married and had kids and had a life sabbatical (laughs) for a period of time so if this was for you obviously full-time and you're saying that you know you used a, a few drinks to help kind of numb numb those nerves how much were you actually drinking per day or per week, Justine? Well, then that yeah. actually was not my worst period. My So th- in those particular times, that's when I, I think I learned to dabble around with it a little bit. And then I would actually say in my you know late 20s, I actually was pretty good with alcohol. Where I started drinking um at a, at a completely different level and really drank to medicate was in my very early 30s when I was in the midst of a, a separation from the father of my kids, my ex-husband, and um, had quite what I would call a quite tumultuous, traumatic uh, relationship and that I just did not know how to cope with that at all. So I upped my drinking like there's no tomorrow and a hundred percent, you know, really began to medicate with alcohol. So, and then I think if we're going to talk about the height of my drinking, which was sort of my mid, mid, mid to late thirties, um, I was drinking right at the end there, maybe three or four bottles of wine a day. Um, you know, at least a couple of bottles of wine a day. And then, you know, when I wanted to go undetected and I would, yeah, if, if I, if I, if I was, didn't want anyone to know what was going on, I'd throw a few vodka shots in there as well. 
but yeah, so that right right at the end, it was an exorbitant amount of alcohol. So you said if you wanted to go undetected, mm. was were the people around you aware of this, or had you kept it hidden quite well? Um, a bit of both, but no, I don't think there was anybody that knew the the full extent to what I was, the, the consumption that I that I had at the time. I know my husband, so I, I remarried. He definitely, he still says he didn't, he had no idea that I was drinking that amount. We both actually pushed it, so it was a little bit of enabling there. But I had it hidden all over the house in different, you know, sometimes in different bottles in, in the bathroom. I'd put it in a shampoo bottle or something like that um I'd put keep extra bottles in other rooms of the house in the wardrobes in case I needed to get to those so there was the the bottle of wine on the table that I drank while everybody was there watching and then there was the others that were hidden through the house where I could you know drink more so it was a lot it was a lot in the very end Mm. Mm. so how did all of this kind of fit in with family life then you've you've a new husband you've two young kids yeah but you're drinking so much and you're putting drink in shampoo bottles and and these kind of things how did that fit in yeah um mum did a lot of sleeping apparently so look i i will i will say to this day that i'm extremely fortunate in the fact that i had a, a really large support network and those that did know were very much assisting in kind of disguising it, at least from the kids. So, you know, during that time I was sick a lot and, you know, if I needed to sleep things off, which was quite often, or I just, you know, was not really capable of doing anything, uh, my husband would, you know, take the kids out or, yeah, it was, it, it didn't fit in. Look, in the very end, I wasn't even, I wasn't capable of working. You know, there was a good period of time where I was what I'd call a highly functioning alcoholic. And somehow I managed to work around that. And, you know, every sober moment that I did have was spent getting things ready for the kids. Um, you know, I'll throw it in now, but my daughter was is type one diabetic and she was diagnosed when she was seven. So during this time, that was another one that was actually, believe it or not, and that's probably a really good point to bring up, that was another thing that tipped me right over psychologically was when she was diagnosed. We had no idea where that came from. It was just left to centre and she was seven and I was still going through all my own shit. (laughs) And, you know, we all know how much life does a 360. So here's me in this state drinking like a a fish and then going, oh, shit, I need to drink more because now I've got to cope with her being diabetic. And then at the same time she was, you know, she was on, she was using pens at the time. Actually we were using syringes to begin with. So here's me in all my sober moments trying to dial up her insulin and make sure I've got correct doses in her first couple of years, which her levels were all over the place. Um, I would, I would actually sometimes, if I knew I was going to have a big couple of days, I would dial up her doses for the next couple of days and put them in the fridge, knowing that I had actually done those doses when I was sober. It was a, it was a nightmare. It was a massive juggling act, massive. 
So, yeah, I don't know. Family life, look, my kids always came first. So what whatever I did was all about them and, you know, every measure that I took in terms of getting support and 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 assistance was pretty much for the kids. It wasn't so much for me. It was it was making sure that the kids were looked after. Hmm. So yeah, they were too young to know that at the time that it was my drinking that was causing the issues. Yeah, and I was I was actually reading a few articles on you only this morning in preparation for this chat. Yeah, and you said in one of them that you you hadn't seen your your own dad for a number of months and. Mm. I think when he saw you for the first time, he said, if he hadn't known it was you, he wouldn't have even recognized his own daughter. Yeah, so- that was that was right at the end. Yep, it was right at the end when I um, I moved from Melbourne back up to the Gold Coast to be close to my family. And that's when they, they essentially, they um, forced me into, well, forced me very strong-handedly, um, suggested <laughs> that I went to, to rehab and, uh, yeah, dad came up and I was about 47 kilos. I hadn't eaten. I lost probably in the last in three or four months in that time when I was drinking, I had lost, I reckon, I still didn't weigh myself, but I reckon I'd lost about 14 kilos in that short period of time. And I actually had, I could not eat. I physically, I was so unwell that I physically couldn't keep down food. So my GP actually had me on Sustigen, which I don't know if you've got Sustigen over there, but it's essentially like a hospital formula liquid that has all your vitamins and minerals and all that sort of thing in it. So I I literally replaced food with alcohol Um, and I was a total, total mess. My liver was showing showing signs of cirrhosis. My platelets were so low. I was like black and blue. I I fractured my hand somewhere in those last few months. And I remember I woke up one morning and my hand was killing me. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Like, I don't remember anything. And it was swollen. I went to the doctor. I'd actually fractured it in like three places and my knuckle was moved right back. And my doctor said to me, uh, how did you do that? And I've gone, quick, think of something. And I said, I made something up because I had no bloody idea. I must have got up in the middle of the night probably to go to the bathroom or something and I've just fallen flat on, flat on the floor or onto a wall. Who knows? I don't know. But I was a total, total physical mess. And I was, you know, in the, in the very end, I was told in one particular emergency hospital visit that I had that I had literally had months if I continued that way. So it was pretty dire right in the end. He's a lot to go <laughs> to go on. And, and even when you were explaining about, obviously your daughter had been diagnosed with type mm. one and we obviously both know, Justine, how complicated type one is in general, yeah. let alone you know, trying to get all these these insulin doses and check your mm. blood and all these kind of things when, as you say yourself, you're medicating yourself with alcohol each day. Yeah. So when you were given this final warning of essentially you have a number of months left if things don't change, mm. how did you then actually make the decision to quit? Because it's a di- there's a difference between 
getting this warning and then you actually quitting. So how did you go about that? You know, I get that this is a question that I'm asked a lot and I have to honestly say that in the very beginning I was really very much steered in that direction by my family. I, 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 I won't say I was a real willing participant in my recovery to begin with, but on a subconscious, unconscious, whatever level, I think I was. I, I remember I, there was one particular incident in the end and, you know, everyone says, oh, what was your defining moment when it changed? I don't know that there was. There was a lot of different ones and they all added up, but I do remember my my stepdad had been looking after the kids and he picked them up from school and brought them back to me at home. They were doing a lot of, you know, looking after the kids for me at that particular time. And my husband was still working in, in, in another state here in Australia. And he brought them back and I had been drinking and I wasn't supposed to be. I think I'd actually started my first week in rehab um, and I went in as a day patient, not an inpatient. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, Justine, I can't, I can't leave them here with you tonight. And my daughter looked at me, so she was oh, weeks off 10, I think she was almost 10, and she had tears in her eyes and she said, Mum, I'm scared you're not going to get better because I was sick. That's apparently what I was, I was sick all the time. And... I don't know. I, I've got to say that on on some kind of level that I was not conscious of, that was definitely a turning point because the only thing I cared about it in that entire time was my children because I couldn't give a shit about myself. Um, everyone talks about you need to make these choices for you. Sometimes that's not enough when you don't think enough of yourself. You need some other kind of incentive or motivation and for me that was them because they deserved way better than what I was you know not even really giving them and so GP visits and psychologists and it was it was very much strongly suggested that I went into a rehab program and I I fought to not go in as an inpatient because I really felt like I needed to still be at home with the kids I I think and as I said, they're the only thing I cared about. So for me, if I went into rehab as a as an inpatient, that was taken away from me, and that was really the only thing keeping me going. So I managed to get everybody to agree that I would go in as a day patient and, and go in three days a week and be you know supervised in there and go through all of the, the therapy and that type of thing. So I did that. And I, I did a medical detox with my GP, so I, I had to go on measured doses of Valium for a period of time so that I, you know, wasn't in real trouble coming off the, the copious amounts of alcohol that I'd been drinking. And I just went through the motions. So I did everything that they told me to. I, I, I ticked each box that everybody was telling me to do. And, and slowly it became a little bit more conscious for me and I could recognize that what I was doing was positive and that I was actually beginning to feel better. And that's when, you know, my psychologist suggested that I should start exercising and that literally changed everything. 
So for you, was it kind of like an easing off of the alcohol? Because I, I remember reading saying that you had just went completely cold turkey. Yeah. It was just like an instant quit or were you kind of steadily coming off it? No. So at that point where I did have to go into rehab, I was told, you know, during that time I was supposed to stop altogether. And I, I did when I was in actually in the rehab program. And that's why I needed the, you know, the, the Valium essentially, that's what they detox you on. I needed that to, to, um, to assist with any of the sort of the, the, the medical issues that I was going to face based on a physical dependency. But it was, you look, the first two years that I came out, actually probably 18 months that I came out of rehab, I had very much thought that, no, 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 I'm going to get a handle. I've got a handle on this alcohol now. I'm not medicating with alcohol anymore. I can be a social drinker. So I dabbled with that for the next 18 months and it never ended well. I was never, you know, a thousand was never enough and one was too many. It just didn't work for me. I didn't have the ability to switch off once I started, which is not unlike a lot of people. <laughs> it's a it's a chemical thing. And it just didn't it just it never worked. It never worked. And in during that 18 months I'd very much started to be a really strong advocate of of my training um, and exercise being part of my my therapy and every time I did have a social drink I was you know the next day I couldn't train and I was like whoa shit I love my training now and this just if I drink I can't train because I will inevitably drink too much I can't just have one and I really like my training so over the next 18 months and there was one last time that I did drink, which was a work Christmas party that ended quite badly. I woke up the next day and I, I was hungover as anything and I hadn't drunk for four months and I just sat there and I was anxious and all over the shop and I said, I just, I know I can't do this anymore. I, I, can't, I have to stop pretending that, that every time I pick up a drink I can be in control because I can't. So, mm. yes. So the thirteenth of December two thousand and um, well, it was a thirteen was my last drink. So, what is as you say yourself, Justine? Your sober clarity. What do you mean by that? Sober clarity is look when you when you remove all of the filters that you place on yourself or ingest and you know particularly with alcohol because we we have it 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 provides us with illusions or false representations of who we are what we are how to deal with things all you're left with is a raw state of being and when you do that your your brain has this ability to be able to just to see, you know, the trees from the grass kind of thing. And I don't know, my head pings. And I say that all the time, my head pings because there's, there's nothing dumbing it down. And I, I just really feel that I have a much better ability to be able to see things in a much more um, 
true light and and my judgments are a lot better. I can see all perspectives. I'm not being swayed emotionally anywhere or, you know, chemically anywhere. I just, I, I, I can't explain it other than it's just, everything is clear. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's clear and choices are a lot, I think they're a lot more well thought out. So, yeah, mm. I don't know. I love it. I love my sober clarity. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's one of the the common themes that I see you referring to, even on your social, in terms of the differences now, like physically, mentally, and emotionally compared to how you were back then. And like, I was actually looking at at a photo of you this morning, and twenty years ago, you looked twenty years older than you do now. You know, <laughs> like it's unbel- it's unbel- unbelievable, and that's all just credit to you and how you've got over this thing and and who and what you are now it's incredibly inspiring as i said earlier since then justine you've decided to well you did obviously write and publish your own book called sobriety delivered everything alcohol promised can you elaborate a bit more on the book's title and what that means yeah so alcohol i think we all have well, I think it's, you know, depending on how you've been brought up, but we, from whatever experiences you've had with alcohol, most people see it as something that can provide them with, you know, calm. It can provide them with courage. It can provide them with excitement. It's uh, a drug at the end of the day that gives us a false sense of really of what we want. And for me, getting sober gave me all of that. Alcohol took that away. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's, 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 I guess it's hard to, to describe if you haven't actually <laughs> been in such a state or, or had alcohol be a, a really prominent part of, your, of, your, of the way that you cope with life. But I know now that I used to think that I would never survive anything in life unless I had alcohol, but I now know I will survive anything in life if I don't have alcohol because I have control. And that's something that you lose when you drink to excess or you have an alcohol um, consumption issue or you're an alcoholic, you know, give it every label that you want to give it. It takes your power and when you take it out of the equation, you slowly get your power back. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned briefly about those images of me when I was, you know, younger and then somewhere in between my sabbatical from life and then, then where I am now. When I was in my 20s and late teens, I thought I could take on the world and, you know, I had this extremely strong, ambitious streak and, you know, I was extremely confident as well. And then I lost all of that because, it, it, you know, alcohol took all of that away from me. And when I removed it, all of a sudden I, I realized that I could get that back and then <laughs> add a few more years of wisdom. And, <laughs> I, and now I feel, I feel more unstoppable than I did when I was 18. Mm. So it's control, it's power that you, you gain back. Mm. 
So for anybody who finishes writing your book or writing, reading your book, just mean, <laughs> they can write it. This yeah, way. They can write the second yeah, it's, one. It's already, it's already <laughs> written. It's already written. Yeah. For anybody who finishes reading your book, what do you expect or what do you hope for them to feel as a result? Hope. Exactly what you just said. So for me, it's all about I, – I, I feel obligated because I found uh, I found a path out and I, I found a, uh, I guess I call it my foundation of wellness, uh, almost a template for somebody that wants to to do the same and alcohol has become an issue for them. So I want people to know that there is life on the other side. It's not just, you know, this is it, I'm stuck here. So it's definitely about hope for me. So that's what I would like people to to feel after they've read my book. I don't like, you know, I'm not a, I, I hear the word inspired a lot. Yes, inspired, but it's hope because when we have hope, we make our own choices as well. Can I ask you what, from your experience, what do you think the, the drinking culture in Australia is like? Because obviously in Ireland there's, you know, probably an internationally renowned drink culture. What is it like in Australia? Uh, it's not indifferent to over there. In fact, you know, you've got to remember where Australia comes from, <laughs> from Brit, <laughs> from England. Uh, from, from, so our drinking culture is absolutely not a lot different to the UK. Well, I'm and Ireland. Just, just yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you're Ireland. But ours <laughs> I is had not. to jump in. It's not, it's not, well, it's not indifferent though to, to, to Ireland. And mm. I guess it's, it's, I would very much liken it to the UK. Mm. <laughs> so from so, your experience, like, and I know, I suppose even growing up in Ireland, because there is such a huge drinking culture, are there any early signs of addiction or alcohol abuse that people should look out for in relation to their drinking habits? Oh, look, I mean, it's so hard, especially when you first start drinking, you know, I look at my early days of drinking and I probably started drinking the the same as anybody else at a party with friends. And I think it's when one of the first signs for me, when, when somebody maybe should start questioning their relationship with alcohol is when, if there is a crisis or something goes wrong how quickly do you turn to having a drink that's one thing and probably the other thing because there's different types of drinking not everybody drinks in in that same I guess medicating manner if you're also the type of person that goes you know is quite social and goes out and has one drink but then just cannot stop that's another time that you should start questioning it because that becomes that's much more of a uh, a chemical reaction to alcohol, um, which you know there's a whole science behind that as well. But definitely, how quickly are you reaching for a drink every time something goes wrong? You mentioned there that you know if you're reaching for a drink to deal with crisis, that's obviously a certain alarm bell ringing. How do you now, Justine, deal with crisis if it's not a drink? I deal with it. So, um, oh, well, you know, for me, training exercise is, a, is a, an integral part of my ongoing recovery. I 
you know, if, if it was an immediate kind of traumatic type instance, I definitely wherever I can would straight away throw on my runners if that was an option and go for a big walk or something like that. You know, I live really relatively close to the beach here. That will be my first port of call. I am not shy. If I needed to have some counselling, I would definitely go and do that as well. I make sure that I have also, I'm very in touch with my support network. So I, I talk a lot. It's just, for me, it's, I could not, it, it, there is no option to drink. So it's everything but that. And it's everything, it's all the antagonists to, to drinking and that is being healthy and well. So it's getting good quality sleep. You know, if I'm really stressed out, I pull back everything, sleep, eat, train. They're my three things. Mm. So start to get overwhelmed. And, you know, I still have, you know, my mental health conditions. I still have obsessive compulsive disorder, which is, you know, just it's really a, an exacerbated form of, of anxiety. And that can creep up on me really quickly if I'm, you know, pushing the envelope at, um, definitely in terms of time and, you know, work and overwhelm and that sort of thing. I, I will get to a point where I, I know what my, my, I have my check boxes of symptoms and I'll go, right, okay, it's time to pull back, sleep, eat, train. And they're the three things that I will focus on and everything else will take a back seat until those are, you know, really solid and I've hit some kind of equilibrium again. Yeah, I love that. It's just like your your way to reset everything and kind of get 100%. back to baseline to an extent. That's exactly it. Yep. Good analogy. Can I ask you, Justine, how do you navigate social situations now in the sense that I suppose even with Ireland, as I said, there's a huge drinking culture. Australia, there's obviously a huge drinking culture. Mm-hmm. Is there any approach you take towards, you know, a night out or dinner out where you are surrounded by alcohol? Well, yes, uh, definitely at different stages it's been different. So in the very, very beginning, you know, there was still a massive temptation to drink. So I coordinated all of my social life in some kind of fashion where alcohol was not going to be present, you know, to begin with if I was socialising, it might be breakfast with friends. I had to really pull myself out of any social environment where there was alcohol but that changed definitely over time uh now where I am right now I have no issues being around alcohol I'm I'm not tempted at all I feel uncomfortable when there's an excessive amount of alcohol around me and it's not once again it's not temptation it's just uncomfortable it's just not my thing anymore um and you know (laughs) if I'm going to a party I'll hit my limit at some point in time and go, yeah, everybody's a little bit messy and it's just not my thing and I'll, I'll make an exit. So, you know, at home, my husband's still, um, you know, he's not a non-drinker, but we don't drink in the house unless there's a, well, I don't drink at all, but he doesn't drink in the house unless we have a function or somebody's over. So there's n- it's not in my face. And, and once again, it's not because of the temptation. It's just, it's just uncomfortable. So I definitely don't avoid it now, but there are parameters of where I, I like to be with it. You have since been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and mm. you obviously had recovered before you were diagnosed with type 1. 
Thank God Living for your that. Life with, yeah, I was just going to say, Justine, how do you feel that whole experience would have been if you had been already diagnosed with type 1? I'd be dead. That was part one of this episode. If you are listening to this on the day of the release, part two will be out tomorrow. But if you're listening on any other day, part two is the next episode on our list.